United Soccer Coaches is proud to bring you the weekly United Soccer Coaches podcast, covering all aspects and all levels of the game we love. The United Soccer Coaches podcast is presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer announcer Dean Linky, the longtime television and podcast voice of the association. Now, here's Dean with this week's show. Now more than ever, right, we need to come together as a country, as an association, as people to break down barriers, reject racism, reject homophobia, accept love, accept respect, unite and be together. United Soccer Coaches, I hope you all agree, has brought that mindset to advocate and to accept everyone, no matter your religion, your skin color, your sexuality, doesn't matter. Our arms are open. Today, we hope to show that on the podcast as we open the show by meeting Susie Petroselli, the author of Raised a Warrior, One Woman's Soccer Odyssey, an intimate look at the life of the former Harvard women's soccer player as she and even her twin sister, who played with her at Harvard, dealt with the pressure of being a young female, a young female athlete, understanding herself as bisexual dealing with depression, overcoming issues with weight and eating disorders, not having a voice when she needed one, and coming through it stronger and prouder, and in fact, ready to do more for female athletes and women's soccer right now. And joining me with Susie in the interview is Marianne Gucciardi, founder of DragonWingGirl.com, a girl gear website that allows young girls, teens and tweens, to feel comfortable as an athlete and in their own skin. Mary Ann is an advocate for young women, and to be fair, she's an advocate for all of us to be better people, better parents, better coaches. She just wants a better world for all of us to live in, and we certainly need that right now. We need it for each other, and certainly based on the current climate with such major social injustice, We need it for people of color. That's why we also welcome today Kia McNeil, one of just four women of color coaching the Division I women's soccer program. Kia, who started Boston College and professionally in the WPS, won the Ivy League at Brown last year and was named the Ivy League Coach of the Year. She will tell you that's great and all, but she has a real message of what it's like to live in this country as an African-American woman. The little things that we say and do every day that aren't right, that we need to be aware of. If we really want to make a difference and reject racism and accept love and respect, you need to listen to her message. A special thanks to the multi-talented Nicole Hercules, chair of the United Soccer Coaches Black Coaches Advocacy Group, for getting us Kia on the show. So buckle up, folks. This is a good one. There is no topic that Susie and Marianne don't tackle as we break down her book and a documentary that is also coming down the road. And Kia McNeil does the same. And we get started right after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, 
and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with TeamSnap. Go to TeamSnap.com slash NSCAA1. Welcome back. I am Dean Linky, and this is the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. And today, we open the show with two influential, insightful, courageous, and talented women that, from where I sit, have made it their mission to not only tell their story, truly all of it, but do their part to be better parents, raise strong young women and men, and be there to help others do the same. And our two guests today are Susie Petroselli and Marianne Gucciardi. We'll start with Susie. She is the author of Raised a Warrior, One Woman's Soccer Odyssey, and producer of Warriors of a Beautiful Game documentary. She has intimate knowledge of the issues surrounding gender inequality in sports and soccer, and through her memoir, she quite frankly pours her heart out with her words to put a shining light on so many issues young women and young female athletes deal with. Susie, welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. And to start, please break down the book, the documentary, and the umbrella that it all falls under. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to, to meet you and be here. And thank you to Marianne and all of your amazing work, Marianne. Thank you. So the book is called Race a Warrior, One Woman's Soccer Odyssey. And it's a memoir about my life in soccer and my childhood in soccer, how I, you know, struggles that I had, and then how I woke up to all the amazing people around the world who are pushing equality in sports and in soccer. And the movie, the documentary that's coming out soon is called Warriors of a Beautiful Game. It's part of a bigger project called Warrior Women of Football that was created by Kelly Nascimento DeLuca, who is one of Pele's daughters. And the project is one of Kelly's efforts to continue her father's legacy and grow the game for everyone. Because as he says, it's a beautiful game and it's everyone's game. And great to be with Marianne Gucciardi. She's a soccer mom and Dragon Wing Girl Gear founder. She's a blog writer, amazing human being, an amazing advocate for women and girls in life and sports. She is all about health and body and self-esteem, team building and life building through sports. Welcome, Marianne. Hey, Dean, thanks for having me. Before we start, I actually wanna read Marianne's review posted, Susie, about your incredible book. As she says, It's an important reading for athletic girls, twins, parents of twins, the LGBTQ community, coaches of girls, and those who feel isolated even when part of a team. The memoir focuses on the difficulties and achievements as they are defined by the author and examines the personal, societal, and athletic challenges to every girl. The section on the current status of women's soccer and equality in sports is timely indeed. The author has bared her soul putting her story out there for the benefit of others. Marianne, a great review. Susie, when you hear that, what does it mean to you? Marianne has been a huge support for us, for me personally, and also for the Harvard women's soccer team. She's very eloquent. She's an amazing businesswoman and leader. And I'm touched and moved by how deeply she connected with so many things in my story. She's always pushing me to get my story out there. And she's just been a huge help. And Marianne, as the founder of Dragon Wing, we talked about you being an advocate for women and girls in sports and life. Why were you drawn to this book? So I think that girls have a lot of expectations of how they should be and what success should look like. And when you read Susie's book, you see that success 
takes on a different meaning because it's defined by her. And she's constantly challenging the expectations of others and what it means to be successful in sports and in life. I think that her journey is an example of winning and winning as defined by her. And for me, that's super important because if we can take the societal expectations out of the conversation and just let girls be who they want to be and tell them that's enough, then that will free up mental capacity for girls and women to do the important work that needs to be done in their own lives. And Susie does that in the book, and it's just a great example of, of winning on every level. Again, the name of the book is called Raised a Warrior, One Woman's Soccer Odyssey. Before we dive into the book, Susie, I want to know your odyssey all the way up to Harvard, where you grew up, a little bit about your family. Tell us a little bit more about you before we get into the book. Sure. I grew up in Southern California. When I was lucky that AYSO was letting girls play by the time I was five. I hadn't been allowed to play my family's favorite sports, which were football and baseball, which bothered me a lot. He gave me a little soccer uniform and put me out on the field. And I just loved it right from the beginning. So I went through the AYSO program. I went through the ODP program and was lucky to be scouted by Tim Wheaton at Harvard when I was a junior. I had an amazing choice, got to choose between Stanford and Harvard, and ultimately chose to follow my twin sister, Katie, to Harvard. And I had an amazing experience. It was an adventure. It was not an easy adjustment at Harvard, the culture, the weather, but I wouldn't change a thing and um, it makes for a great book, I think. <laughs> Indeed. So how did you get into writing? So it's funny. I think originally I got into writing because I was not a great sleeper as a kid. My mom handed me a, finally, after trying everything else, handed me a piece of paper and a pencil when I was probably 10 and said, you know, write whatever's in your mind, write it down. That might help you sleep. And it did. So uh, that habit continued my whole life. And whenever I couldn't sleep, I would, I would write everything down. So that's originally how it, how it started. I was never like an English major. I never took a lot of writing in school. I took all science in school. But also a funny thing happened. My mom told me when, she, when I was about 20 that she had been writing like a mystery novel like a, you know, a murder mystery, and that it was hidden somewhere under her bed, and she would take it out and work on it a little bit and then put it away. But nobody ever knew. And I still to this day haven't seen it. So I think that that planted the seed in, the, in my mind that, you know, my mom had this dream. She was a stay-at-home mom, and she had this dream that she almost didn't fulfill or didn't believe in herself or something. So I think that always stuck with me. In a way, I almost feel like I fulfilled that a little bit for her. I feel like it's come full circle and I've proven to her and me that we could do this. Your mom comes off so great in the book. I think when she keeps you playing during that championship final, you should tell that story. That's a great story and really reflects like your mother's quick thinking and tenacity, which you have inherited. Yeah, so it's funny because, you know, growing up, my mom would say, she would say that we get our athletic ability from her because there's, there's uh, four, four of us, the siblings. But my dad played football at Stanford and my grandfather played football at Loyola. We were like, well, what'd you do? And she was like, well, I was on the bowling team. We were like, oh. Okay. And, you know, we didn't get it. And then, you know, like many, many years later, we started to wake up to the, the fact that the history that there were no options for her in school, right? There were very few athletic opportunities for girls at that time in the 50s and 60s. So, but this one moment changed it all for me. We were in a game 
I got accidentally red carded because my sister had had a yellow card and the ref got confused and gave me a second yellow thinking that I was her. And then, so I got a red card. I got kicked out of the game. My dad got angry, got kicked out of the game. The other coach got kicked out of the game. It was a big mess. We were left, uh, and this is a game against Shannon McMillan too. Like it was a big, big game. So we got left with no coach. We were going to have to forfeit. And then all of a sudden my mom comes running on the field with her manager's pass. And she's running and, you know, runs up to the ref. She calms herself down. I can see like, you know, talking to the ref calmly and carefully explaining, I have a manager's pass. I have, you know, can we please, you know, can this be accepted so that we can continue the game? And the ref allowed and the other coach allowed. So my mom coached us through the rest of that game and made, and we won. And she saved the day. My mom has a fighting spirit. There's a couple other stories in the book where she shows that fighting spirit. Knowing that she didn't have the opportunities to play sports, learning that made me appreciate my opportunities even more. Now, before I ask you why you wrote this book, I kind of want a quick soundbite from Marianne to Mm -hmm. answer that question. Marianne, knowing what you know about Susie, why do you think she decided to write this book? To help other people, to really be helpful and to move things forward in a meaningful way. You know, a lot of people write books and they gloss over the hard things or they don't tell you entirely their thought process. And you're like, wow, I can't recreate, recreate that wheel because I don't know how, the, the trajectory from here to here. But Susie does that. You see exactly her whole process. And whether you're a girl, like thinking through your life or a parent thinking about your children, you can see, wow, I went through that or that could happen to me. And this is one way to handle it because we all know there's no one right way. And you feel less alone, you know, when you can see somebody who's done it, who's achieved her dreams as she defines them. And I I feel like that's super useful. And I wish more people would write their personal stories that don't gloss over the hard things, but actually focus on the hard things so that we can learn from them. That will make everybody have an easier journey. So break down the process of deciding to write this book because Marianne is right. You put it all out there. So originally this book came from me missing playing. After I graduated and my career was over, I missed the game. So it was heartbreaking. That transition is heartbreaking for for any athlete, right? But I spent my, I guess, free time writing about our experiences and writing about soccer. And I realized that it was the next best thing to playing. It was like being there and it was a relief. It was like a salve, right? And so I just kept doing it for myself. And eventually I started thinking that if I was going to turn it into something, since I didn't have any writing experience, I should learn about what good sports writing is and looks like. So I started trying to dig for books to read, movies to watch. And I quickly realized that all of those books, especially at that time, or majority of them for sure, were about men's sports, written by men, directed by men, about men's sports teams and male athletes. So it's hard to find stories about girls. So the stories that I was finding as I was digging even deeper were stories, nonfiction stories about Billie Jean King, about Babe Diedrichson, about Title IX. That's when I started to kind of do like a deep dive into women's history and started to wake up to where my opportunities came from and all these amazing pioneers that I was not appreciating for fighting for all of my opportunities. So that's kind of the process of the book. It's still very much about 
a girl's story, a human story. And I want people to relate to that part of my story. But I also am hoping that that part of the story will carry people through to the last third of the book, which to me is the most important part, which is about like all these amazing people in the world that are already working so hard to make progress for us in women's sport around the world. Who do you think this book is most important for? What is the audience you're targeting? So I think the book is most important for female athletes, but I also think that it's very important for girls, dads, and coaches of female athletes, and, you know, moms too. I try very hard not to make it too heavy on the, the history that I became so obsessed with learning about because I, I want people to go through the awakening with me through the book and end up in the place where we are now, which is knowing that there's still so much that needs to change, but with so much hope with these amazing people like Amanda Vandervoort and Moya Dodd and Mary Harvey and all these amazing people that are really making change right now. One piece of advice that you want people to take, especially coaches, from your book. The most important piece to me is that one person can make change. One person, even from your house with a laptop, can make change. I felt very alone and unempowered growing up, especially as a girl. And uh, I learned that it's not impossible to make change, even from your little isolated place where you are. And especially through technology now, it's so easy with social media to find people who are working on the issues that that need to change, breaking glass ceilings. And if you if you find a barrier that no one has attacked before, then you can be creative and find a way to focus on that, that new barrier and build a new community around that barrier. Sort of like recognizing that we can all be activists in our own way. And, and it, like the title, Raised a Warrior, is about how originally how my father raised me to be a warrior on the field. He called it reckless abandon. It was like you sacrifice your body for the goal or the win, right? And then through the book, I realized as I grow up that it's to me, it's more about raising my daughter and raising my children to be warriors for causes that they feel passionate about, as passionate as I feel about this one. So following up, Susie, on how we can use barriers as opportunities for change, one journey that you yourself took was on sexual identity and how to figure that out, which I think is a very common experience for all children, teens, and tweens. And so can you talk a little bit about that journey that you took? And there is a a very good section of the book, which I'll let you tell about your goalie, I think. I really thought that was not only so funny, but so well done, so real. Thank you. So, you know, when I was at Harvard in the early 90s, we were just starting to be more open about um, our sexuality. By the time I was a senior, we had players that were very openly gay, which was amazing. And we were sort of at that time where things were changing really quickly. And there was one moment where I was a senior and we had our freshman goalie came in and she, when she came in, she was, she was already out. We shared showers with two other women's teams. We shared showers with the field hockey team and the lacrosse team. So there were times when there would be more than one team in the showers at the same time. So she uh, walked up to one of the field hockey players at our local bar, the Crimson, which unfortunately isn't there anymore. She said, hey, we never met, but we showered together. And, you know, she, she, uh, I think they actually did end up going on a date. So sexuality to me was something that I, I guess I never understood 
it took me a long time to realize that other people were uncomfortable talking about either bisexuality or homosexuality. To me, it just seemed normal that I would say, oh, I'm attracted to boys and girls. It wasn't until I started being, you know, talking about it in bigger circles that I would realize that wasn't the common thing to say. Probably did feel myself dampening it down a little bit because of that social pressure. I just want to make sure that my children know and, you know, people know that I'm I'm openly bisexual and, um, you know, I, I never, I never felt like there was a need to define myself. Um, if I was, you know, who I was attracted to love is love. And I guess it's funny to me that some people make such a big deal about it, but I, you know, I, I, uh, I do understand. I also love the scene in the book where you and your brother talk. You want to talk about that a little bit? Such a great Sure. Scene. Yeah. So my brother, so this is when I was a junior and I took a semester off and I'm sitting in the car with my brother and I decide that I'm going to tell him. And so I said, you know, I think I'm bisexual. He started laughing, like really laughing. And I was like, that's not very nice. Why are you laughing at me? And uh, he said, oh, no, it's not. It's not what you think. I, I, I'm gay. So it was just a, it was just a cool moment that we shared. You know, it, it, uh, it was a defining moment for me. There was another section in the book that really touched me. It was the section with you in the car and a situation that young people can find themselves in where they can't find their voice and they don't know what to say. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? You know, it's hard, it's hard to kind of put myself back in that place. But at that time, it had never happened to me before. So I didn't know what was happening. And then as, as I realized that this, this boy was not going to stop when I told him to stop, I think I was, I was, I had a hard time believing that he wasn't going to stop and he didn't, but I didn't, I, it was a very awkward situation. Um, I had a friend in the front seat uh, with her boyfriend and it was just one of those moments where if I could go back, I would do it so differently. And I would, I feel like it's, those are the moments that we need to share with our young girls and boys because if we talk about them, they won't, it won't, may, might not happen as often. And yeah, it was, it was, I didn't talk about it for a very long time. I refused to cause a scene. I thought that people would not believe me. And I thought that people would think that I put myself in a bad, situ- bad situation. Yeah. So I, I didn't talk yeah. about it for a long time. Yeah. We're so honored to be here with Susie Petroselli and Marianne Gucciardi. Susie Petroselli, the author of Raised a Warrior, and you've been very candid as you dealt with your sexual identity, very candid about everything, including what happened in the car right there. And it doesn't end there for your roller coaster of a life that is so intriguing. You mentioned that you suffered from depression. Your sister suffered from an eating disorder. There are a lot of peaks and valleys in your life for sure, Susie. Yes, my uh, story is full of struggles. But when I um, started to realize what women outside of the United States and women uh, in other you know, parts of the world, um, even women in other communities in the United States, the barriers that they face and the struggles that they face, it was impor- an important part of my journey to realize that you know, the things that I had to deal with were part of the story of women, but also women el- elsewhere face so many more difficult challenges. So I think that when you talk about those challenges, um, whether it be the, the assault or uh, mental health issues, when you look at it in the context of women in the world, you feel like you can identify with all of it and, and therefore advocate for it in, 
a more powerful way. I try to be open about what happened to me and hope that, you know, little girls will will read my story and learn a little bit from it. And also if they've been through something that maybe they aren't comfortable talking about, maybe they'll feel a little bit more bold and realize that, Mm -hmm. you know, people have been through Mm -hmm. what they've been through Mm -hmm. and there are people that want to help. Part of it, yeah, is is the dialogue and the willingness to reach out and and ask for help. Um, I had a hard time asking for help. And I I think that's one of the things that I'm most important things that I'm trying to teach my own kids is, you know, ask for help when you need it. It's okay. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. I love that, Susie. Raised a warrior, one woman soccer odyssey, Susie Petroselli. She experienced everything and she puts it all out there in this book. We mentioned your mental health. We also talked about your sister, this notion for young women, the thinner, the better, and the thinner, the happier are the general messages we are surrounded by in our society. Can you address that? Yeah, I think that we, you know, girls especially are taught that you can't be too thin. It's a dangerous image to put up there. You know, we need to be changing that narrative and we need to be teaching kids and everyone, not just kids, that your health is the most important thing. Putting healthy things in your body, putting the right things in your body and the right amount of, of those things um, in your body um, is all the most important thing. Exercise. It's, it's more about, you know, holistic health. And, you know, we need to be changing that narrative rather than make it this, you know, ideal of, of, the, of the thin, um, you know, model. So it's an ongoing struggle. I, I see it with my niece and my daughter all the time. And I fell into it as well. And my sister did as well. You know, you, I got hurt. I gained, I gained weight. And immediately I started, my self-worth just went straight downhill. I know I convinced myself that my boyfriend dumped me because I was now overweight. Then I was just became completely obsessed. And, you know, she had the same, my sister had a similar experience trying to lose all that weight. It's very hard to lose weight when you're also trying to become the best soccer player you can be and lifting weights and muscle. And so it was, it's very, uh, it's a very destructive mindset. It's a very destructive cycle to get into. But I think, you know, one of the things, hopefully, if we talk about it more and we share our experiences and we focus on, on, um, nutrition and we, we keep we keep bringing it back to, to what's healthy for you right now and you know maybe it'll be easier to steer kids in the right direction again. I know this is a important issue for me. When we started Dragon Wing, we did a review of the size chart and we realized that the girl size chart hadn't been updated for like 50 years. And that meant that there was no consideration for the athletic girl. You can't kick a ball across the pitch without having like really muscular glutes and thighs. And you can't be a tennis player without having strong arms. And you can't be a swimmer without broad shoulders. And then that led us to realize that the size chart had been based on a Caucasian standard. And so what we did was hired somebody. And she found research and did research on an inclusive size chart. And we just keep refining the sizes so that we can include all girls because we want them all to play and we want them all to be helpful and we want them to have a good experience when they wear garments that when they put them on that they fit their body too that they fit everybody's body so that's like super important for me because when you go shopping and you end up in the boys department especially as an athletic girl it tells you well being an athlete is somehow not feminine being an athlete is in itself enough you're an athlete We don't have to gender qualify any of it. Susie, as the father of two boys that played competitive basketball, AAU and high school basketball, 
I saw the power of a coach, the good and bad of a coach. You address that, particularly a bad coach that also is not a good person. They have so much power that it affects the kids, it affects the parents, it affects a daily dynamic. Coaches are powerful. This is the United Soccer Coaches podcast. So we got to remind people that coaches need to understand that power and use that power the right way, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I, t- I tell a story about what happened when I was at Harvard with the men's team. And, you know, I've actually had some of the players reach out and they are uh, thanking me for telling that story. I witnessed what can happen to a kid's life and a kid's career, Not, you know, when the coach is, is not a good person, unfortunately. It's very hard if you're in a situation where the coach is, is not going to change and the administration is not, not willing to make a change with the coach, you have to decide, are you going to keep playing or are you going to quit? And it's a terrible decision to, to be faced with. Unfortunately, I've seen it, a, you know, seen it many times. I think it's changing a little bit now. I think the administration and schools, at least the, the, in my experience, are starting to listen to players more. Um, in the 90s, you know, players really weren't, um, didn't have a voice, I would say. But I think that's changing now, uh, changing for the better. We're having athlete councils. We're having members of the team in the discussions and within the administration. So hopefully that's changing. Susie had amazing coaches. And I think that it was so lucky because I think having a bad coach can really derail you or having a coach that's not experienced with girls can be less effective. And really that coach who changes your mentality from liking the game to loving the game is pivotal to a player. And I've seen that with my own child, that one coach that takes takes the child from liking it and to just transforming the game to a lot of air. You can't replace that kind of a coach. And I think then when you have other coaches that are not as knowledgeable about how they talk to players and particularly girls, it, it can happen in soccer it can happen in gymnastics it can happen in swimming those comments can be super damaging for the physical and mental health of girls they can overtrain they can restrict their diet they can lose self-esteem and that's really difficult as a parent because you feel powerless because you don't know what you can say and you don't know how to handle it there's no playbook for that so I think that that story about a bad coach and a bad person I think that's a really important story in the book. One thing that I think when we um, uh, that when we we talk about the book, what's the the thing that you want coaches to take away when they read this? Like you said, I, I mean, I've been very lucky. I've had amazing coaches my whole life, and also they, you know, very, many of them, including uh, my coach at Harvard, was instrumental in finding me the mental health care that I needed. He changed my life, may have saved my life, found me a counselor and put me back on the right path to mental health. So, you know, I've been lucky. And, you know, like Dean, like you were saying, I think um, the role of the coach, the job of the coach is just as important as the parent in many ways. And I think organizations like United Soccer Coaches are hugely important for educating the coaches, having a community, a support group for the coaches, setting a standard for the coaching, for on-field, off-field, mental health, you know, in every aspect of a child's life, setting the right mindset. Are we, are we going to focus, are we the type of team that's going to focus on winning? Are we the type of team that's going to focus on participation? And there should be a place for everyone and, there sh- and the coach has to have the right mindset for 
that for that group of people, it's, it's not an easy job. Um, you know, I've, I've coached little ones and it's not an easy job. It, it takes an amazing type of manager, it takes an amazing type of communicator. And, you know, especially with, you know, these big issues that we're dealing with now, people have to have the capacity to take it all in and digest it, take care of people, really, because the, the coach's job in the end is, is to bring people together and um, have people work towards one goal. And that's, you know, obviously not an easy thing to do all the time. Conflicting goals in oh, some ways, because it, yeah. there's how do you put incentives around mental and emotional and physical well-being and winning? Like as a right. business person, I think about, you know, what, how do we motivate people for holistic behavior? And I don't have a good answer for that, but I just think that's probably something to put out there for everybody to think about. This is quite the book, Raised a Warrior, One Woman's Soccer Odyssey, Susie Petroselli. Another topic that you hit early on is when you say sometimes an injustice cause for a fight and that you don't back down even if it means breaking rules about appropriate behavior. What do you mean by that, Susie? Well, I think, you know, at that time it meant something, that story was related to experience I had with my father, but I think it applies to what's going on, you know, right now with the racial tensions in our country. We now know that when we see something that's not right, we need to stand up and protest against it. And if that means not peacefully protesting or some peaceful civil disobedience, then that's what it's going to take because the system, unfortunately, is not just right now. There are inequalities and uh, we all have a responsibility to, to try to make progress on those. As we think about your life and your fight for women everywhere, what do you think is going to happen with women's soccer? There's Women's soccer has been in the news so much lately. There's so much going on. How can we get everything that we want? <laughs> um, you know, it's going to take time, obviously. And I'll say that. And that they deserve, that you all deserve, you know, that you're, you've worked for and earned. Yeah. I think I think it I think it will happen. I think it's going to take time. Obviously, we had you know men's soccer had a huge head start when you know women's soccer was banned for fifty years in uh, England and Brazil and Germany. And you know we didn't get Title IX here until uh, the early seventies, nineteen seventy two. So we've come a long way in in the last fifty years. We still have a long way to go. But now, like I was saying, with social media and technology, the network is growing and becoming tighter. And we're sharing resources and we're sharing information. And we have people like Amanda Vandervoort, like I was saying, who you know, is now uh, the head of the women's division at FIFPRO, the, the global professional soccer union, players union. She's doing the research and she's do, putting in the time and putting in the work to provide the data that we need to show where the change needs to happen. You know, she's just published the report raising our game that shows like the steps that we need to take the first couple of steps that we need to take to get closer to equality the first one being you know standard uh, minimum working conditions which is happening you know it uh, Mm -hmm. i think in spain yesterday they announced that they're going to professionalize their top division of women's soccer which includes uh, minimum standard working conditions for their women so i think it's i think it is changing I have a lot of hope for the future. We are seeing, unfortunately, some players right now, their career is getting cut short because of cuts to programs because of the pandemic. It's not going to be a straight road up. It's going to be ups and downs, but um, I think the trajectory is generally up and we're hopeful. 
So Susie, first this wonderful book that we're breaking down. And again, we thank Marianne for making us aware of this book. And now, just in case folks missed the beginning of this interview, you told us about the documentary you are working on with a big, big name, the daughter of arguably the best men's player ever. Remind us again about the documentary, Susie, how it came together and who you are working with. So the documentary is called Warriors of a Beautiful Game. The documentary was, the the idea came from a woman named Kelly Nascimento DeLuca, who's one of Pele's daughters. And really, she, she just woke up about 10 years ago to the fact that, you know, she had been hearing about men soccer players in Brazil her entire life and hadn't been hearing about the female players. So she started to dig into it. Obviously, she had heard of Marta or either her dad or one of his friends had called Marta like like me in a skirt. So she was aware of Marta. But, you know, when she looked, took a deeper look at Marta, she realized that Marta's financial trajectory was nowhere near her father's. Right. And also then she realized it's very hard to find other female players in Brazil. There's, you know, that top level that are on the senior team. And then and then where are the rest of them? And then she realized that only one percent of the of players in Brazil are women. So she was going down this research path about women's soccer in Brazil at the same time that I was doing the research for the my book and doing more of like an American perspective on it. So we met by a, by a mutual friend, friend right at the right time and started working t- together and collaborating. She was helping me with my book and I was helping her with the film. Eventually we made it more formal and I became on as a producer and um, we ended up traveling to six different places to show what women's professional football looks like in um, Zanzibar, Brazil, England, France, Italy, and um, here in the U.S. We went to the Orlando Pride. And so the film is an, edit- is an editing now. Uh, hopefully we'll have it out this year. The goal was to have it out around the Olympics. So maybe we'll wait. We'll keep that timeline and have it out for, for, next, for next year's Olympics. You said you went to six different countries. And I'm sure that on not just the soccer level, but the personal level, that was a huge, hugely informative experience and probably transformational. Can you talk a little bit about visiting all those countries and what you learned? I know we share that I think you've been to Italy and experienced women's soccer in Italy. And I lived in Italy as well. And definitely when people see women's soccer players, they're just like, they just, it's so outside of their narrative. Yeah, that it's a Italy, shock. Italy is an interesting, um, is in an interesting place with women's soccer. The first part of your question is, um, yes, we, every place we went to film for the documentary, we were surprised by what we found, which is funny because you can kind of take a guess at what, what you're going to find at all, at all these various places because um, of the, sort of the stereotypes around culture and gender in each of the places. But what we what we found, the women's experiences there uh, in their daily lives was was unique to each place and the barriers were unique to each place. For instance, we learned a lot about the Muslim culture in Zanzibar. We learned a lot about the health crisis that they're facing in their older generation of women because they're not allowed to exercise. Um, they're not allowed to show their, their necks or their hair um, and their clothing. And so that has that has made it very hard for them to exercise. Um, and this, the, uh, you know, physical education is not part of their daily school life for girls. And so there's a movement there to push the sports for girls 
for health reasons. In that way, they're staying within the bounds of their, you know, the respect for their culture, but they're making the change that needs to happen. The health crisis there is is, is serious. They have hyper, you know, an epidemic of hypertension, diabetes, arthritis. So there were things like that that we learned in every place. The most hopeful place that we went to, there were many hopeful things, but what, one of the most hopeful places that we went to was Manchester City, where the leaders there and actually everyone in the program, everyone there that we met believes in the equity of the women's program. The women's team has access to everything that the men have access to. They're the closest to equity that we've seen. In Paris, the, the PSG women have this crazy, beautiful fan culture um, with the, the drumming and the, you know, the, the fans of the men's team support the women's team equally. And so that was really exciting to see. I think part of, you know, part of the thing that we are growing here, what we're seeing at something like Portland Thorns, right, is this beautiful fan culture around the women's game. So that was really exciting. I'm, I think we need more of that everywhere. And so they're really leading that. We saw different things everywhere. And in, in Santos, Santos, you know, Brazil is, is still a little bit heartbreaking. They don't have any uh, infrastructure for the young girls. So, you know, that's some place that we as a soccer community really need to focus and help, which we're trying to do and Kelly is trying to do. For us, all these places, it, it, the, you know, the amazing thing was that when we started listening to people's stories, they were so gracious and they were so honest and open and grateful for us to be there listening. There were a lot of tears. We cried several times, even when I couldn't understand the language. You know, I'm crying right along with them because I know that they're grateful that we're listening to their story and that we're going to try to help them. It was definitely a transformational experience. I'm grateful for it, uh, for Kelly, for bringing me along. And, and you know, we're hoping to share the whole thing, the whole story with, with uh, the world very soon. We can't wait for that. We can't wait to get your final comments about the book. And I also do not want to leave either one of you with when you talk about gender equality. Right now, we also need to talk about race equality. We're going to get that at the end for sure, because I want to get your sentiments on that. Before we do that, though, I think, Susie, you agree, it's definitely worth promoting the amazing work that Marianne Gucciardi has done at Dragon Wing, Girl Gear founder. Their mission is to empower girls in sports and in life with high-performing, comfortable, athletic undergarments designed just for preteen and teen girls. Dragon Wing gives girls the freedom and confidence to focus on the competition skills and teamwork of the sports they love, empowering them to play and be their best. Marianne ends by saying, be fierce, fast, and have fun. That's what it's all about, right, Marianne? Oh, absolutely. Be unapologetically competitive, which, Susie, you are the example of. <laughs> and that being competitive looks different for everybody. So it's just having that inner tenacity that can keep you moving forward. Marianne, where can people learn more about your business? What's your website? We're www.dragonwinggirl.com. Also, if you go to Marianne Gucciardi, it comes up because Gucciardi is, uh, I think we're like, I'm the only Marianne out there. <laughs> All right. Well, there's only one Marianne. There's only one Susie Petroselli. Susie, as we put the bow on this and we think about your documentary coming forward, but people that can go out and get your book right now, Raised a Warrior, One Woman's Soccer Odyssey. If you could just in three or four sentences tell everybody why they should read this book, what would you say? I would say thank you. I would say that 
I love reading about women. I love hearing women's stories. Anyone from the right, from your neighbor to your sister to a celebrity, I want more of them. So I guess what I would say is read my book, please. And then look for more, look for more stories about women. Ask, ask your local sports bar to put on women's sports, ask, you know, your newspaper to, to cover more women's sports. Um, we need more women's women's stories, not just sports stories, but all women's stories. And beyond the review that I read from you, Marianne, what would you tell people about reading this incredible book, Raised a Warrior, One Woman's Soccer Odyssey? I think it will inspire people to think about writing their own stories. That's certainly the effect that it's had on me. And that also your story is unique to you. There's no right or wrong way for anybody's life. There's just the decisions you make and how you deal with them and and move forward. And I think some things are not in our control. Some things, whether it's because of external things like COVID, but some things are, and banding together and getting the support and help you need is a way to deal with things that you don't have the capacity to deal with in that moment. All right, because I promised it, And again, I thank you, Susie, for really being open about you and how you tried to figure out your sexual identity and how you realized there were times when you could talk about it, times when you can't. Hopefully now you can talk openly. Right now, this country has a major problem with racism. I'm standing up against racism and I'm for love and respect. I'm sure both of you are as well. During this time, what is your message as it relates to racism? My message is that this is not just something that's happening, you know, in the last few years. Obviously, it goes back 400 years to slavery and the history of our country. I think that it's only since the 60s that we've been starting to make real change um, in the legal system on behalf of the Black community. And we have a very long way to go in terms of our culture and full integration and full equality and full respect. And conversations need to happen. Hard conversations need to happen. We have a responsibility to teach our young people about the whole history and not have them see what's going on on TV and misunderstand it for just something that was a one-time situation. I'm proud of all of the people that are uh, standing up and, and speaking out and um, are committed to going forward to, you know, continuing the conversation and uh, continuing to make change in a real active way. So I think it takes so much bravery to stand up and to do it either in a group or alone. And I think we're in that moment in time where it's just so important to be brave right now to stand up and and to be for everyone. And I think that sometimes our, we learn societal and social stereotypes through media, through TV, and we sometimes don't challenge those. And now is the time to challenge everything and really be thoughtful about the conclusions that we come to. And I want to also be optimistic because I want the world to be better because if it's better for everybody, that's the goal. And I'm, I think we can get there as a, as a soccer community, as a nation, as a world. And I want that, you know, peace and prosperity. It's for everybody. 
both of you have stood on your own for so many years and fought for the right things. So with that, Susie, remind everybody where they can find your book and remind everybody when the documentary will be out. And then when we're done, Marianne, we're going to remind you to tell everybody where they can learn more about your incredible company. We'll start with you, Susie. So the book is on Amazon, on Kindle, and in a paperback now. You can also buy it on the floodlitdreams.com website. I'm also on Twitter at Susie, S-O-O-O-Z-I-E. I love feedback about the book if you do have a chance to read it. And the film is in editing, like I said. You know, we're very hopeful that we'll be out this year or early next year. If you'd like to reach out, we do need help with the film. So if anybody is more interested or would like more information, please, please do get in touch. You can reach me at MarianneGucciardi.com and the company is www.dragonwinggirl.com and we do performance base layer for teen and tween girls. Actually, Susie, when you think about having an advocate like Marianne that props you up, how does that make you feel? Marianne is a mentor uh, for me. She's one of the people that I look to, especially right now. She's not only an amazing mother and businesswoman, but she cares about people deeply. She cares about where our country is going. She cares about where the world is going. And, you know, she's committed her all her resources and all her energy to helping young girls and helping young girls feel more comfortable on the sports field. And that's near and dear to my heart. You know, part of the reason I wrote the book was to give, when I realized that girls out, you know, in other places didn't have the same opportunities to play sports that I had. So, you know, Marianne is is trying to make girls be comfortable on the field so that they stay on the field. And that's, you know, one of the most important things. And I second that, Marianne. I thank you so much for bringing this book and Susie's story and, in fact, your story forward to be a part of this week's podcast. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Susie. (laughs) Thank you so much for shedding a light on all of this. And thanks for the podcast and for opening it up for every, and and the webinars and opening it for everybody. It's been really um, um, important and, like, just it's really filled a void during this whole period. And I hope you keep it open. It's been useful. I appreciate those kind words and the time spent with Susie and Marianne. Up next, we wrap up the show with Kia McNeil, the head coach at Brown. Stay with us. Being a coach means being a lot of things. Mentor, teacher, role model, motivator, leader, organizer. Of course, it's not easy to be all of those things. You need help, and who better to help you than an association of fellow coaches. Membership with United Soccer Coaches includes access to over $500 worth of e-learning courses, an improved online resource library with more than 1,000 activities, session plans and articles, $1 million worth of liability insurance, and a whole lot more. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org join and start your free 30-day introductory membership today. United Soccer Coaches, your association for all things coaching. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Hopefully you were all moved like I was moved with the visit with Susie Petroselli and Marianne Gucciardi. Very impactful. 
both of them saying great things about Kia McNeil. It's hard not to as Kia enters her fifth season as the head women's soccer coach at Brown University after leading the Bears to last year's Ivy League title and an appearance in the 2019 NCAA championships, marking the Bears' first conference title and NCAA appearance since 1994. McNeil the 2019 Ivy League Coach of the Year. She started at Boston College, and I also called her game. She probably doesn't remember me because I'm not that memorable, but I remember her playing for Paul Riley and the Philadelphia Independents. And, Kia, you were legit then. You're legit now. Congrats on all your success at Brown. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. What does it mean to coach in the Ivy League, such a powerful conference known for strong academics, and really, actually, incredible athletic programs as well. Yeah, I mean, it means a lot to me growing up in a family where education was, was very important. Obviously, the Ivies are, are kind of the pinnacle in terms of uh, academic experience, uh, certainly. And, you know, I felt when I came in four and a half years ago that, that I really wanted to make sure that we elevate the athletic side as well because I think it's important that, that people get the best athletic experience that they can and the best academic experience. So that's that's something I'm very prideful of to be working at Brown, one of the best academic academic institutions in, in the world and you know obviously this season this past season we had a lot of success and I think people can get the best of both worlds in the IV and that Brown specifically. Obviously you know we're dealing with unprecedented times the pandemic and the ridiculous social injustice last week on this podcast Shaka Daly the head coach of Michigan one of under 10 coaches of color at the D1 level, and then Mike Curry, who has created an incredible endowment for people of color through the United Soccer Coaches, telling their story, speaking their message. I don't know the numbers for people of color coaching in women's Division One soccer. I can't imagine they're where they need to be. Kia, hopefully we get a day someday where it's not, you know, hey, that's a black coach. It's, it's just a coach because a coach is a right. coach. But it's right. still an issue, and you as an African-American coach at the D1 level, what does that mean? What kind of responsibility does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I can answer your question, at least for women. You know, there's only four black women coaches in, in Division One. so I think out of – I think it's up to 341 programs right now. There's four black female head coaches, and and I'm you know I'm obviously honored to be one of them. But with it being 2020 right now, and and obviously there's a lot of black women and black minorities in the game at this point. Having four women head coaches is certainly not reflective of the the number of youth players in the sport. So. You know, a lot of people say you got to see it to be it, and, you know, I'm happy to be on this platform to help young women see that this is a career. This is something that you hopefully can see yourself doing down the road, and hopefully it creates a pathway for other minority women and other women in general to kind of dive into the coaching role and really look at it as something that they can do. So I think even for me working at Brown, the Ivy League are historically – very, very white institutions. And, you know, I think diversity is, is really important. You know, I think diversity is knowledge. Diversity is, is, is power in some ways. And my team, I feel like it is very diverse. And especially in today's climate and, and what's going on, it's been amazing to see my team come together in this time and lean on each other for support, have tough conversations with one another, 
open up with one another and they've even started an initiative a fundraiser for the NAACP they've taken a lot of the emotions around everything and really driven that towards a, a positive cause as well as we all stand up no matter what our color and reject racism and accept love and respect one of the stories that's not part of the narrative and as you like me I have great respect for Nicole Hercules who now is the chair for the Black Coaches Advocacy Group for United Soccer Coaches. And she pointed out to me that one of the stories not being heard right now is this is not just a black man issue. Black mm-hmm. women still are not treated fairly. Can you elaborate on that or share some of your own personal stories? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the big thing with, with George Floyd and, you know, I'm going to obviously say Breonna Taylor and some of the, the hundreds of other people who have innocently lost their lives. It's the situation itself. But I think people also forget that there's psychological effects on people from the repeated racist remarks or comments or treatment that a lot of black Americans face every day. Obviously, the George Floyd, the Breonna Taylors, the Ahmaud Aubrey's, that's like one extreme. But there's a lot of racial comments, microaggressions, things that, that happen every day to our black student athletes that happen to me. I remember an incident in, in college when I had turned in a paper and the professor said, hey, who, who wrote this? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, we, can, we can't find it on the Internet anywhere. We can't find we know that you weren't capable of writing something like this. And I was like, what, how, how do you figure? And then they said, well, you're, you know, you're an athlete, right? And so for even that, for them to assume that I'm an athlete, obviously they were assuming that because I was black. And they went on to say that basically they, they thought a tutor had written it for me. I didn't, I've never, I've never had a tutor. And so, you know, obviously that was something that was elevated, and I think I think the person might have even lost their job over something like that. But you know, the situations like that happen a lot. Even I remember when I was playing in the WPS, and obviously you you remember I'm I'm a pretty like aggressive, hard nosed defender, play with my heart on my sleeve, and I I had an interview after a game, and after the interview. I forget who I don't even know who it was, but they, they said, um, "Wow, you're you're so wow, you're so well spoken," and it's like, why wouldn't why wouldn't I be well spoken? You know, I think just even little comments like that, you, people don't understand how much that eats away at at Black Americans. And you know, I've I've never seen somebody turn to another white person and say, "Oh, you speak so well." You know, but but why why are people shocked to hear you know the way I speak or whatever the case might be? So there was a time when I was playing in Atlanta, where you know the team was going out at night and we went to a place that was predominantly black. I had arrived a little bit late, but I, I noticed that my teammates who were predominantly white were were kind of huddled up, and they were like, I don't know if we should be here, guys. Like I think we should go somewhere else and. And I came in and heard them kind of talking like this, and I said, guys, this is my everyday life. You're in a situation now where you're in the minority in this establishment, and for whatever reason, that makes you feel uncomfortable. And and I think that's the biggest thing is somebody shouldn't be able to look at a black person and think, oh, I feel uncomfortable. 
I feel like this person's a criminal. I feel like this person's a cheater. I feel like this person's a thief. And I think that those are things that as black Americans, whether you're a man or a woman, you see those type of things that happen to you, you know, sometimes every day, you know, or at least, you know, it's frequent enough where I think we've almost I don't I don't want to say normalized it, but it's 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 so common and so prevalent that it's it's you know, kind of all encompassing. So, you know, I think this movement, what's going on right now is long overdue. And, you know, I'm happy to see that people are taking a stand with it. But I also don't want this to just be a point in time, you know, that that everybody's trying to make a point and make a statement, you know, say that they're going to look at their values and and restructure things you know this this needs to be something that's an ongoing conversation people need to be educating themselves open to dialogue and we need to change we need to get better as a country and so hopefully that's what this movement is is really going to mean in the long run yeah and i appreciate you sharing your stories because you're right a lot of those situations have been normalized and that needs to stop and we need to do it together and we can do it by just you voicing those and making us realize, you know, hey, we do say that, we do feel that, and it's wrong in every mm-hmm. way. You know, along the way, uh, before you became a coach, you know, you were such a great player, as you, as you mentioned. You had some key people in your life. I know one of them is a guy that I get to know well, the voice of the courage, and that's Paul Riley. When you think about key mentors, who are they and why? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say Paul Riley is one of them. I would say Allison Foley, he, she was my coach at Boston College, and she's the one that kind of opened the door for me to get into coaching. She asked me to be her volunteer assistant with her, and then, you know, Tracy Leone at Northeastern. And I think that with all of them, they kind of lended a hand and, you know, helped elevate me as an individual, and then obviously me and my game in, in different ways, and just really found the value of of myself and did a good job of of trying to like bring out my strengths and I think that's something that like you know with Paul Riley I feel like that's one of his biggest strengths as a coach is he knows how to get the most out of every single player that he has on his team and you know get those individual players to collectively play well together so I think you can have different mentors in your life at different times of your life and I think the three of them have have obviously had major impacts in my life to to get me to the point where I am right now and I think I take little pieces of of what I learned from each of them and I'm I'm kind of like a little bit of a sponge as a coach and took a little piece of each of them to to create my own philosophies and my own culture around my program. Finally Kia, you mentioned the word play. We all want to get back out there and play again. I feel like the Ivy League is being appropriately cautious before they push forward. What can you share with us about what you're hearing from the Ivy League and from your university about getting back out there and a college soccer season this fall? Yeah, I mean, I, I think our our president, she's um, she's been very vocal about the fact that, you know, we need to get our kids back on campus. I think she's been on CNN last week. She was speaking to the Senate about the importance of of getting our students back and obviously speaking about the safety parameters around that as well. And I think that we're actively seeking solutions of how we can get everybody back. 
but also make sure that it's a safe environment. Um, so I think we've all come to the, the understanding that this fall is not going to be normal. You know, it's not going to be like 2019 or any year really in the past. We're, we're going to have to make certain accommodations to things, but I do think that they're trying to look at everything in order to get our student, students back and hopefully create an environment where, you know, it's safe to play as well. So I think they're being treated as two separate entities is, is one is just getting the students back in general and then two is is hopefully having a fall season. So I know that they're actively working on that every day. We we don't have any clear cut answers right now. Um our our president said that she would make a decision at the latest by July fifteenth. So you know, we've we've just been patiently waiting and optimistic about, you know, what's to come. No matter your sexuality, no matter your color, no matter where you're from, a coach is a coach is a coach. And guess what? Kia McNeil is the 2019 Ivy League Coach of the Year. Thanks so much for sharing your story and your message, Kia. It moved me, and I know it'll move our listeners. We appreciate you stepping up both on our webinars and our podcast. On behalf of United Soccer Coaches, Kia McNeil, congrats on all your success. Keep it going, okay? I will. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Are you kidding? We appreciate having you on. We appreciate Nicole Hercules as well for helping us connect with Kia McNeil. also want to thank Susie and Mary Ann for breaking down their incredible book and documentary. Well done, Susie Petroselli. Well done, Mary Ann Gucciardi. For Sean Shevel, Mike Knipper, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches, I'm Dean Linke. Stay safe, everybody.